And it will also be on the screen. And let's dig into the Word of God this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to bless us in our time. So Father, we love you and we're so thankful even for the beauty of this day, the sunshine that reigns outside all around us. It reminds us of your goodness. It reminds us of who you are. I want to thank you for every person that's in this room today, Lord, for their story. We thank you for the way that you have wooed them in over the years. That there was somebody that came into their lives, maybe when they were younger, maybe when they were older, that told them the good news of Jesus Christ. It changed their life forever. And so, Father, as we have gathered here in this place, I pray, Lord, that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us from your word to live the good lives that you've called us to. And Father, we confess that it is a tough time. It is a hard time in so many situations, maybe personally, maybe corporately, maybe even just living in this place. It's hard. And so we lay our lives down at your feet and we ask God that you would take these sinful, broken lives, that you would make them good by your hand and for your glory. And now as we open up your word more, I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, our souls. I lay this down as my offering to this community and to you, God. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to continue preaching and teaching out of the current sermon series that Pastor Brad and Matthew and others have been preaching over the last several weeks. And if you go back on the Crossroads YouTube, Facebook page, you can see the sermons. And we started a sermon series here in January called The Great Deception, the Great Deception. And perhaps a good summary statement of this series, especially if you're new to Crossroads this morning, might be this, and we're going to put it up on the screen, is we, those who are trying to do our best to follow Jesus, are subject to the deceptive ideas and ideology that play to our disordered desires, that is the flesh, and are normalized in a sinful society. This is the world and the culture. Now let me just pause for a second 
and just say, if you're new to Crossroads this morning, maybe you came in today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're trying to figure out what this church is about, maybe even a relationship with Jesus is about, I'm so glad that you're here. And this conversation, while directed at the believers, those that follow Jesus, I think actually is very applicable to your life as well as you're trying to figure out the faith. Uh, because the Lord tells us how to live in this, and you may find it very compelling. Today, though, in this conversation, what I would like to do is take a look at our response to this dynamic, this conversation that you've been having when we talk about life by the flesh as compared to life by the Spirit. What is our response, especially as it relates to this difficult and challenging moment in our culture That is, how does Scripture call us to live in this normalized and sinful, broken, and sometimes hostile culture to the faith that we have in Jesus Christ? How are we called to live in light of the Spirit's work in our lives to help a broken and fallen world find and follow Jesus? And friends, you will hear me say this over and over today. We lead people with what we lead with them to. We lead people with what we lead them to. Now, I serve uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination. We have some 900 churches across North America, the United States, and Canada, and I have the honor of serving them as the director of youth ministry for the denomination. So when Matthew talks about Unite or Unite North, as we're calling it, those type of things are things I interact with. But I serve on a larger team called the Make and Deepen Disciples Team, and our job is to support the church in helping them make and deepen disciples. So the name is very descriptive, okay? And probably six years ago, we uh, started an effort to create a um, new-to-the-covenant evangelism-equipping uh, strategic um, effort, and we called it the BLESS curriculum. Some of you maybe have seen the BLESS curriculum. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but it's been a very useful curriculum and effort that we put forward. And the BLESS curriculum actually was not created by us. We just kind of cultivated it for the covenant. It actually came from a pastor that serves on the north side of Chicago at a large church there who wrote this, um, this, this curriculum called the Bless Evangelism Curriculum. And in it, he uh, talks about this thing. And I'll never forget the first time I heard him talking about the Bless Evangelism Curriculum. He said the idea came from a very peculiar place. Uh, he was reading a doctrinal thesis. Now, who reads doctrinal theses on the regular? I'm not sure. Maybe some of you do. But this pastor did. And he read a doctrinal thesis that was called Blessers versus Converters. Blessers versus Converters. And in the thesis, it was a research thesis, and basically what they did is they followed two different mission teams. If I remember right, these two teams were going to Thailand to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and to invite people to follow Jesus. The one team, the Converters, went with the idea of doing whatever they can to proclaim the good news of Jesus in a place like a church or did street evangelism. It was very proclamation heavy, a very good thing, okay? The second team that the research paper labeled the blessers went to Thailand with the sole purpose of just trying to do whatever they could to bless people in their community. The mindset was very different than the converters. They said, we would, we, they said, I'm just here to bless whoever comes my way, or I just want to be a blessing to the people in my community. 
Now, the study followed these two teams throughout their entire trip to Thailand, and it followed up with them several years later. And they discovered two very important things that actually help frame our conversation today with the Scripture. First of all, they discovered that the blessers had a great social impact, a much more greater social impact than the, conver- excuse me, the converters. This proved out that the first team's intentions of blessing the people and the community around them resulted in tremendous amounts of greater social good. Secondly, and this is what is so surprising and important for our conversation, they discovered that this first team of blessers had almost 50 times more conversions to Jesus as the converters did. The blessers helped 50 times more people find their way back to Jesus. The bottom line that this research showed, and one of the reasons that we engaged in this curriculum, is that the best way to help people who are far from Jesus find and follow Jesus is to be a blesser. This disposition is a great setup for our conversation today, especially as we think of how the church has postured herself to serve this current and in many ways chaotic and sometimes offensive landscape, cultural landscape, that we face every day in our world. It is not a stretch by any means to say that the world we live in, especially as it relates to our faith in Jesus Christ, is rubbing against the tension of one of the most significant periods of change in our lifetime. Living a life that honors Jesus Christ, a life guided by the fruit of the Spirit, is indeed challenging. It's also not a stretch to say that not so long ago, we might remember a time when the church was more situated in culture in that it was making a more significant impact on our everyday world, at least an accepted impact on culture. Faith in Jesus Christ was maybe not at the center of culture, but if we think back 20, 30, 40 years, there was a different mentality and acceptance of the church. I grew up in the 70s and 80s in this very church here, and while I don't remember exactly the church being the highlight of culture all around us, it certainly was a more accepted place, especially if you compare it all across the United States to the way that the church is accepted now. Much of this had to do with the overarching impact of the boomer generation, those senior saints that are now experiencing what's known as the great retirement. We see some 10,000 boomers a day retiring out of culture. And with the boomer generation came what was known as the modern mindset. And there's only one thing I'll highlight for this today, is boomers valued and loved absolute truth. Sociologists wrote about this when it comes to modernity and the minor mindset, and boomers loved absolute truth, and one of the hallmarks of absolute truth during the boomer sort of generation was the church. It was scripture. It was, it was valued in a different way than the younger generations that have come after that have valued. And especially now as we compare that to the contrast of these generational nuances with the younger generations that have rejected absolute truth, we see that as contributed to marginalizing the voice of the church because absolute truth just doesn't, isn't a value for Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Zers, and now coming up are these younger alpha generations. It's a different world that we live in, and the church has to respond. 
This isn't the first time that we have seen the people of God deal with such a seismic shift in culture. In fact, if we would just, if you would just indulge me for a moment, I'd love to take you back to uh, a little biblical history, a little ancient times, all the way back to the Babylonian captivity. Now, I want you all to look at me for a minute because I might have just delighted some of you with Babylonian captivity talk. I know some of you get excited about that and others not so much. You're like, wait a second, Tim, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Can't we just have a, a story or a metaphor about, you know, the Bengals playing the Rams? Or can't you just talk about the Minnesota Vikings and how Kirk Cousins' contract is too inflated for the Vikings to get to the Super Bowl? We could do that. I could even throw a shout-out or a dig at the Green Bay Packers since Jason Lipke is up in the sound booth. But I won't do that here now. Or it's the Winter Olympics. Can't we have an easy metaphor about how much you love curling? I love to curl every Monday night at the St. Paul Curling Club, and how I wish the men's curling team was doing better. Nope, Babylonian captivity. Or what about Valentine's Day tomorrow? My wife's sitting in the back here. We're very romantic. I love her. I could give an illustration of Valentine's Day. No, we are going to start with the Babylonian captivity because, because... It's a great example of a chaotic moment in culture that actually we can learn a lot from. And just to remind you of your biblical history, the Babylonian captivity happened in 586 BCE. Okay, even if you wanted to go back a little further, just really briefly, remember the people of God, Israel, kingdom split in 931 BC. They split over taxes, by the way. So people have been arguing about taxes for a long time. In 722, the northern kingdom was taken over by the kingdom of Assyria. Israel was um, put into exile. But in 586, the southern kingdom, also named Judah, was taken into exile by this incredibly powerful kingdom named Babylon. Okay, and we use the word Babylon a lot here, but that's the history of it. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. And there was a very specific culture that pre-exile the people of God had, and it's important for us to note maybe just in general three things about the culture of Jerusalem pre-exile. And the first is this, faith was at the center of Jerusalem's culture. Okay, and when I say faith is at the center, here's the phrase I'll use. A God-fearing disposition was the majority consensus. We love to talk about majority and minority consensus, right? But in general, before the exile in Jerusalem, faith was at the center of Jerusalem's culture. We, it was a mono-religious culture. In that, faith was pointed at the one God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it was a mono-religious culture. Now, if you've ever written, or read the, New, the Old Testament, you know that foreign gods were always trying to get in. But the people of God, those people in Judah, they were always fighting against those outside influences because they were focused on a mono-religious culture. And the third thing I'll say about it is that it was a much slower-paced uh, culture. And dare I even use the term tribal. It was a very tribal community in which the family system was intact. And the stories of God were passed down from generation to generation. But when the Babylonian captivity happened, and it happened for 70 years, a whole, several generations came and went, there was a shift in culture during that exile that was very different than the culture that the people of God experienced in Jerusalem. During the Babylonian captivity, one of the hallmarks of their culture there is that they saw faith pushed out to the margins. 
Faith was no longer the center of culture, but it was pushed out to the margins. And again, I'll say this, a God-fearing disposition became the minority consensus, and other beliefs and other ideals became more centered. Faith uh, was not, it was not a monoreligious community any longer. It was a pluralistic society. And it wasn't that there wasn't a value for Yahweh. It was just on a list of many other beliefs that were important. Different gods, different religions, different moral and ethical codes. Those things were all valued at the same level. Does this sound familiar at all? And uh, the post-captivity dynamic was much more of an accelerated and even frantic pace. You see the people of God in the stories of the Babylonian captivity always running for their lives or always faced with certain death, always faced with tragedy. Families were broken, literally separated from each other. The stories were no longer being passed down from generation to generation. What an important parallel to the way that we see a cultural shift right before our eyes in today's world. The Barna Research Group, and if you're not familiar with the Barna Research Group, I just encourage you to Google it. Um, they're a very prominent voice as we address different societal changes and norms. But the Barna Research Group in 2019, so pre-pandemic, the Barna Research Group in 2019 called our current reality as a digital Babylon. A digital Babylon. And the pandemic has only made it worse. I could give you many examples, but one of them is, do we even know who goes to church here anymore? I talk to youth workers and pastors all across North America, and they have no idea who is even the family that we're called to, because we're still in exile. We're in a digital Babylon. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. I don't want to endorse the good old days as if, you know, church in the 70s and 80s and 90s was perfect. We all know that it wasn't. And the church did a lot of things that we would say weren't that great back then. And maybe even some of you are carrying baggage from those days. I want to acknowledge that, right? So this is not like me reminiscing about, oh, let's get back to faith, what it was like in the 70s and 80s. No, the opposite is actually true. I'm here to tell you the simple fact that we're living through a massive shift in our culture when it comes to the place of the church as a place of importance and honor in our community. And frankly... And if I'm being really honest, as a son of the church, I say there's love in my heart. The church in the United States haven't, has not handled this shift all that well. The response, as we're all painfully aware, has contributed to one of the most polarizing times in our history. For example, the church right now, at least outside the walls of the church to general society, is known more for what it's against than what it's for. And it makes me think about that phrase, they will know we are Christians by our love. The word evangelical has little to do with a missional disposition and is much more negatively defined by a partisan affiliation. The generation divide in our churches has, to some degree, put our future at risk. And we have led individually, in our communities, in such a way that has either lost or threatened our place of honor and our Christian witness to the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have created an insider and outsider mentality. Now, I'm speaking in generalities. If you're feeling convicted, that is not necessarily me, because I'm not a pastor here. 
I'm speaking in general, general categories. Let you and the Holy Spirit do the work together. Has the response to this shifting culture led us to live by what we've been talking about all these, we, all these last couple of weeks? Have we responded like it's so easy to in the flesh? Or have we responded in a life through the Spirit? It's really hard. Do we live, as First Peter says, such good lives among the pagans? And I'm just going to admit to you that that word pagans is a little weird, right? Like we don't really use that anymore. So if that's a little bit of a stumbling block for you, I'm not rewriting scripture because we're told not to do that, right, in the Bible. But if I was going to use a little bit different word, I would say such good lives that the people who are far from Jesus in your life. Do you live such a good life that those people, though they accuse you of doing wrong, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. First Peter provides us with an incredible vision and a strategy. A vision and a strategy. First Peter, this passage can't be more clear and simple and yet so complicated at the same time. But if we're really going to dig into First Peter, I think it would be appropriate to do a very short survey of the book because we have to understand why Peter was writing these words at the time. First of all, Peter wrote this letter sometime around 64 AD to those Gentiles, those Gentiles who did not have a heritage or a legacy of faith, who had come to follow Jesus. Now, these new believers in Jesus Christ were spread across this huge area in what was known as Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. And so Peter wrote this to a group of exile people who weren't that connected to one another in this huge huge area, okay? Um, These Jesus-following Gentiles, those who had not grown up with the heritage of faith, um, like ancient Israel had, were now by Peter given certain titles of privilege that once was only given to Israel. Peter named them a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a special people. Now, if we had more time, each four of those phrases have deep theological impact for us today. And if we had more time, we could spend four weeks just talking about just each one of those phrases, and maybe that would be a good thing to do sometime. But Peter gives them, a, he names them with a brand new identity. And now, and here's the key, just as ancient Israel, such privileges carry corresponding responsibilities. You can't just hold this name without also being responsible to the calling that's on your life. Remember who you are and remember how you are to act. The narrative that Peter addresses throughout this letter is linked deeply to these Gentile believers living out their faith in the midst of suffering and persecution. The threat wasn't necessarily from the government yet. That was to come. But really what they were dealing with is cultural uh, pushback. There was cultural challenge. People didn't agree with this new religion that was popping up, this new faith in Jesus Christ, and these believers were being accused of doing wrong, being cannibals. What are you talking about? Eating the blood and body? What, what are you talking about? Like, there's all this confusion about it. And so there was all these accusations. There was persecution happening. It was not accepted to follow Jesus in their culture. So these Gentiles, these Jesus-following Gentiles, their task then as given by Peter, was to be holy in all of their conduct. And in this way, to declare the praise of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. The hope of this holy living 
Why was Peter calling them to do this? That it would either shut down the false accusations that were being made against the people of God or more hopefully cause those people to glorify God, to give their life to Christ and to confess their faith in Jesus. Peter was clear. This sort of vision is very important. This sort of vision would not keep the people from being accused of wrongdoing. It would not keep them from suffering. It would not keep them from persecution. But be sure where your home is. Know who God says you are by living good lives that, I, that glorify Christ. Peter was challenging the believers that day to lead and live with a dependence on the Spirit of God, reflecting the glory of the resurrected Christ. And I wonder, is it any different for us today? Peter didn't write this letter to Crossroads Covenant Church in Forest Lake, Minnesota in the year 2022. Peter didn't write this to address our polarizing moments that we're each dealing with every day, the racial divides that are so painful in Minnesota right now, the political divides that have separated families, churches, our neighborhoods. I mean, we can't even try to figure out how to deal with the pandemic without feeling separated from different people with different opinions. Peter didn't necessarily write these things to those specific situations that you and I deal with right now. In fact, this scripture, and it's important to note, was written to a very specific group of people for a very specific time. So our goal when we try to interpret the scripture is always what the author's intent was. That's always the goal. But we can see our story in the pages of this letter. We can see this story as a different group of people deal with different cultural nuances and polarizing moments and challenging situations. We can see them yearn for Christ to transform not only their own lives, but the culture around them. We read our story in the pages of this text. And so the vision for us becomes clear. When the culture is not Christian and our surrounding city or country develops an apathy towards the Christian faith. The vision Peter shows us is linked to what it really means to be the church, to follow Jesus, and to be known as God's people. Similar to those Gentiles in the first century, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Yes, that is who we are. We are reminded of the responsibility that we each have a purpose And we are here in this place, in this time, to make known who God is. That is the holy vision that Peter names. And we do this in our worship, in our gatherings. We do this in our behavior. We do this with our words. It all comes together to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into God's wonderful light. When we lead... As Pastor Brad has talked about all these weeks, with a dependence on the living and active Holy Spirit of God, that is what we lead people with, and that is what we lead them to. The holy vision is to participate with the Holy Spirit to make known who God is. Not only does Peter provide a holy vision, but he provides us a strategy well And I love the way the message translation breaks down 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And surprisingly, 
Pastor Brad, when he sent out the Crossroads newsletter this week, he added this passage to your, your, you all read the newsletter, right? You better shake your head. He's watching online right now. He wants to know. Um, And he put this message translation of exactly these two verses in that newsletter, and we had not talked about it ahead of time. So I'm delighted that it is a spirit kind of ordained thing. But the strategy that we see in Scripture I think is best told like this. Listen to it. I don't think it's on the screen. Friends, this is the message translation. Friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your own soul. Oh, how I have needed that in my life. Live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and they're, and they're to join in the celebration when he arrives. God is calling us Christians to live in such a way that even if people accuse us, and not even if, but when you are accused, when you face suffering, when you face trials of many kinds, our behavior is so exemplary that it witnesses rightly to who God is. And what does this living kind of, what does this living a good life mean? This is really tough, but I'm going to lay it on you anyways. It means submission. It means humility. It means leading with love. Valuing joy. Breathing peace with every word. Being patient valuing kindness, going out of our way for goodness, modeling faithfulness, having hard conversations with gentleness, and being self-controlled. And in this, we point always, not to our own lives, but to the glory of God the Father. Living this good life means praying for the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in every part of our lives even when we are faced with culture that rejects Jesus. Now, clearly, the Bible does not expect us, and hear me on this, to agree with the ideology and behavior that are contrary to the Word of God. If you're hearing me today say, watering down the Scripture or laying down the Christian ethic, that is not at all what I'm saying. That is not in any way what I'm saying. But our goal is not political revolution. It's conversion to following Jesus Christ. Our goal is not a radical takeover, but spiritual transformation that honors God. And for that goal, we are to do good and to be the kind of neighbors and co-workers and business people and moms and dads, soccer moms, whatever it is that you want to have as a title, that even if those around us don't agree with what we believe, they cannot question the humble, generous, and ethically exemplary life that we live. This is no small task, and yet it is the calling for each of us as the church. It is not a calling to perfection, by the way. It is a calling of maturity, faithfulness, and a relentless commitment to a holy vision that's bigger than ourselves. Richard Baxter was a post-Reformation English 
Puritan church leader. I just, I'm laying out an, this kind of a quote here for you. And he was a theologian that actually died in 1691. He is known for many writings, but one of those things that he wrote is a quote that I feel like was almost written for the very calling that we're discussing today. He said this, to jeer and scoff, to rant and denounce is not a likely way to reform anyone. Let them see it is the desire of your heart to do them good. Do it simply and plainly. Choose the right moment. When the earth is soft, the plow will enter. Watch for an opportunity. Love, simplicity, and seriousness are effective with anyone. What a quote. But wait a second. What did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven. May this be true of each of us, that for the glory of God, for, for the glory of God, we live such good lives that people can't help but see that it's Jesus in us, Jesus around us, Jesus before us, behind us, and everywhere. May that be true of you and me in all that we do, especially in this polarizing time. May you go out as a blesser and bless the community that God has led you to in this moment. Amen? Amen. Can I pray for us, please? God, we just thank you. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and, and how simple and yet how complicated. God, what a, what a high calling to look at our neighbors who maybe we don't agree with and to tell them that uh, we love them. To look at different people who have different, maybe even political opinions that we have and tell them we love them. To look at that boss that is really hard to work for or the coworker that just doesn't seem to let go of these relentless mean things or even our, the students we go to school with, Lord, whatever our stories may be, our family member that we haven't had a, a good relationship with, Lord, you know that there's people in our lives that we struggle with and that you yet have called us to be good to them. Father, I want to pray for opportunity today. I want to pray for opportunity with this church and in my life that you would give us opportunity to share the goodness of Christ with someone, maybe through a very simple act, shoveling their driveway, helping them with a meal, or who knows what it might be, God, but something that in the name of Jesus we do because we know that we're called to it. And Father, may you take that very simple act and make it have a heavenly impact on God's economy. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this church. We thank you for the legacy of this church. For over a hundred years, God, you have been using this church, building people through it to change lives, to transform, to be like Jesus Christ. God, we ask for more. Father, would you give this church a holy vision as they continue to move forward and love people in the Forest Lake community? And Father, may you give them a holy vision that holds tightly to a dependence on the Holy Spirit, rejects the temptation of the flesh, that has called us to be blessers in a world that needs to be blessed. Father, we love you and we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen and amen.